Well, good morning, Baraka. It's good to be with you this morning as we come together around the word of the Lord. Let me first say that it's a privilege to be here this morning. Thank you so much for the wonderful invitation to come and to speak to your church. I do want you to be aware of the fact that you are in our prayers and thoughts as a fellowship. Um, we're one of the many churches in this area that uh, love this church and its pastor, former pastor, as well as uh, the uh, saints here. And so I want you to know that you have been in our prayers and will continue uh, to be in our prayers as you transition, that uh, God would give you uh, wisdom and insight, and that uh, he would make it a smooth transition to what he has for you in the future. I was in error this morning. I had given Brother Howard the wrong passage to read. First uh, Peter 3, when he sh- I should have given him First Peter 1. Uh, let me go ahead and read it. How about that? <laughs> but I do want to thank you, Howard, for your uh, kindness over the years. Howard um, welcomed me here in, uh, when I first came to Atlanta. Uh, As a uh, young pastor, it's difficult to kind of know where you fit in the community. And um, this wonderful pastor's fellowship in Fayetteville invited me to be a part. And Howard uh, had open arms uh, to me. And um, I'm very thankful uh, for his uh, witness, his godliness, his example, his years of service and ministry and faithfulness uh, to the gospel and its proper interpretation. Thank you, Brother Howard. Let's look at scripture. I want to read this text. I'll pray and then we'll begin examining what the Lord has for us this morning. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in the first verse, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Halatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bethania, who are chosen, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood, by grace and, may grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last times. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks this morning for your word. We pray that as we spend a few moments in it, that you would guide us, illuminate us. We we need your understanding this morning. We need you to speak to us through Holy Scripture. We pray that you would, for your glory's sake, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we enter a new year, a year in which our country is in the midst of some very difficult times, it can be and is often human nature to enter these times with doubts and apprehensions. From that position, we can easily sink into worry and from worry to depression and from depression even into despair. None of these natural human responses to difficult foreboding times needs to define us as believers, however, because although we are not immune to these responses, we we don't need to be controlled by them either. Unlike the, the world around us, we have the ability, the 
capacity, if you will, to live beyond the natural and to live by the supernatural empowerment of the Holy Spirit. This morning, as we move into 2023, I I would like us to turn to the issue of the believer's hope. The believer's hope. Now, the virtue we know as hope is is not only absolutely key to the Christian life, it's absolutely distinct from the world and what the world calls hope. Much like the world's opinion of, of faith, which is little more than faith in faith, so too their opinion of hope really does not rise above hopefulness in hope. In other words, the virtue the world embraces as hope is really embraced for the virtue's sake rather than the theological basis for the, for the content of hope that we have as, as Christians. As to the centrality of hope to the Christian experience, I want to share a couple of verses with you. Uh, we, already, we already read one. I'm going to read it again in a moment. But I, I want to first read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 2. 11 through 12, sorry. Listen as Paul describes what the Ephesians were like in their unsaved days. And quite frankly, we were just like them in our unsaved days. Listen to Ephesians 2, 11 and 12. Therefore remember, he says, that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember, listen to this church, that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Wow. The absence of a sense of hope is characteristic of the unconverted. That means for the converted, hope defines who we are. If we were without hope in our unsaved days, now that we're saved, we are marked by hope. This being the case, it's no surprise that Peter described the very salvation of the believer in hopeful terms. I want to read again for you 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father, Peter says, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is this God? Who according to his great grace, sorry, mercy, has caused us to be born again, not just to a hope, but to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What we see in Ephesians and 1 Peter is that there is no Christianity without hope. There is no Christianity without hope. That being the case, what do we say to the world around us when we function in hopelessness as a a group of people? What are we saying? We're saying there's no difference between us and them. We've acquiesced to the world around us. We we, we are, in fact, living as unconverted people when we live without hope in the world. We need, we need God to show up our hope today. Our, our, our text is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. In this text, I hope that we will have greater hope at the end of this message. Let's begin this morning in the first statement found in verse 3. And there we see the author of the believer's hope. Look with me at the author, the author of the believer's hope. Peter says, Blessed 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter begins this description of the believer's hope with a call to bless God. For the Jew, the call to bless God was one of their primary expressions of worship. The name of this church, I hope, I'm sure you know it, but the name of this church, Baraka, was, is, a, is a Hebrew term for blessing God, praising God. It was a, it was a eulogy to God. It was a, it was a blessing to God. And that was central to the, to the Jewish mindset when it came to worship. In the Jewish mind, there was a seamless movement between God, the source of blessing for his people, and God, the object of blessing to his people. His acts of bestowal, his, his acts of grace and, and mercy and omnipotence, from which and with which he blessed them, drew from his people sincere acknowledgement and recognition of who he was. Because of what God did, his people then praised him. They blessed God. They spoke well of God. They attributed good to God. They praised him for his praiseworthiness. That's the concept. In this call issued by Peter to the saints to whom he's writing, we see the link between God the blesser and God the blessed one. He both blesses and he is blessed himself. But this phraseology is interesting. Notice what this text says. We're not being called upon to bless our God and Father, although he is that, but rather the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter here emphasizes not our relationship with the Father, he rather emphasizes Jesus' relationship to the Father. Bless not our God, bless the God and Father of who? Of Jesus, and who is Jesus? Our Lord. This phraseology purposely draws a line from us to the Father, but it does so through Jesus Christ. Our link to the Father is through Jesus Christ. He is the Father. He is our Father. Why is he our Father? He's our Father because Jesus is our Lord. He, Jesus connects us to the Father. He links us to the Father. Peter has therefore emphasized the fact that we're in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What we see here, church, is that without this relationship, there is no hope in this life. This is why Paul said in Ephesians 2 verse 12 that, that being unconverted is having no hope and, and being without God in the world. To have God is to have hope. To not have God is to be hopeless. It's the possession of God. It's, 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 it's the fact that we're in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ that grants us hope. Because of this, we could also say that God is the source of the believer's hope. Peter goes further than that, though. Look, look, look next at the source of the believer's hope. He says who according to his great mercy, stop there, who according to his great mercy, of all the virtues of God that Peter could have appealed to, he appealed to mercy as the foundation of our hope. Mercy can be described as the active compassion of God. 
the active compassion of God. It, it's, it's a foundational element of God's actions towards mankind. Before all else and any other attribute, salvation is a consequence of the mercy of God. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 tells us that. Even love, even love cannot precede mercy because his display of love for those who were his enemies is a display of his mercy. It's the mercy of God that he could love people like us. Mercy is a perfection of God that's related to his grace. If, if grace deals with, 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 with receiving what we do not deserve, then mercy deals with not receiving what we do deserve. In mercy, God pitied our deplorable, miserable, wretched state. But, but God went one step further than that. He showed pity when we were in our condition of misery. Now notice, he did not stop our misery and then place us in a condition to save ourselves. Rather, he saved us out of our miserable condition. When we were enemies, Christ died for us. In our state of misery, Christ sacrificed himself. When we were enemies of the cross, this is an act of mercy that God did in our behalf. Sometimes within Christianity, we, we think that mercy was something new that showed up in the New Testament. <laughs> the God of the Old Testament was was wrathful and, and angry all the time, re reluctant to show grace and mercy. You, you had to pull it out of him to get him to be merciful in the Old Testament. That can't be further from the truth. The Old Testament saint expected God's mercy. They looked for God's mercy. Now, like us, they couldn't assume the mercy of God. They couldn't claim that God owed them mercy but they anticipated that the God of Israel would be merciful to them. Listen, for example, to Isaiah 54, verse 10. In, 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 the, in the Jewish world, the, the concept of mercy was looked at as loving kindness, and loving kindness was, was tied to compassion. In Isaiah 54, verse 10, as God describes himself, he makes this statement. He says, for the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but, but my loving kindness will not be removed from you and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord who has compassion on you. This is the Old Testament. Listen to Psalm uh, 130 verses 7 and 8. It says this, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord, listen, for with the Lord there is loving kindness, and with him is abundant re redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Mercy did not begin in the New Testament church. Mercy has always been and will always be an aspect of, of God and God's compassion. He's a compassionate God. He's a merciful God. He pities us. And brings us mercy. Now, <clears throat> his wrath is still extended to most people in the world. 
But church, this morning, you ought to be thankful that it's no longer extended to you. I hope you're thankful with that. What this means, saints, is that this hope that Peter's going to say that you have finds no basis in you for the hope. Why do you find yourself today full of hope when those around you have none? But maybe some in your own family don't have this hope. Why do you have it? It can't be because of you. Don't look to yourself as the reason you have this hope, saints. You have this hope because God pitied you. God in his grace and mercy gave you this hope. You are an object of the mercy of God himself. The source of this hope is the mercy of God. Peter then describes the context of the believer's hope. The context of his hope. Notice his next six words here. What has this merciful God done? He has caused us to be born again. He has caused us to be born again. Here we see the context of the believer's hope. The context. And what is the context of our hope? Being born again. Being born again. Here we clearly see that hope is a part of a bigger package. A package we know is salvation. Again, this is why the type of hope that we're discussing here this morning is a hope that the unsaved do not have and they cannot have in their unconverted state. They must enter into the family of God to experience this particular hope. They must be born again first. Theologically, we, we refer to this as regeneration. That is to be generated again. This second generation finds its correspondence in our physical birth. It, it corresponds to our first generation. This is clear from the teaching of Jesus. You, you already know John 3 well, church, I'm sure. In John 3, verses 5 through 6, it says, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Just as one's physical birth was into a particular family, that is, you were born to a particular mother and father, so too the second birth was also into a specific family. This is why the who of our birth is so important. Speaking of God the Father, listen to what James said in James chapter 1, verse 18. He made this statement. In the exercise of his will, who's the his? God the Father. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first among his creatures. We're unique. Born of God. <laughs> Brought into existence by God. Twice born by God. John also affirmed the importance of this truth in 1 John 
In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, he says, No one is, who is born of God practices sin because his, because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. Verse 18 says, We know that no one who is born of God sins, but he who is born of God keeps him, uh, who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. So what we're talking about here is a radical change of personality that goes out of an attendant change in one's nature. God changes who we are in our nature, and that results in a change of who we are. We are different than who we used to be. This is, this is a radical change, church. It's radical. It's existential. You are a different person than you used to be. You've been altered. You've been born again. The link between being born again and mercy is stated in, chapter, in 1 Peter 1 verse 3, as I, as I noted, and it dominates, it, that this dominates the New Testament understanding of our salvation. Let me, just, let me just give you some verses here. I want to read some texts that link our salvation, being born again, to mercy. Just as Peter does here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. First Romans 11, verses 30 through 32. It reads, For just as you were once disobedient to God, but now you have been shown mercy. <laughs> Praise God. Because of their disobedience. So these also now have been disobedient in order that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may know now be shown mercy for God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all look next at first Timothy chapter 1 verse 3 it says even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor and yet listen to Paul and yet I was shown mercy Titus 3 verses 3 through 5 says for we also once were foolish ourselves disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he has saved us, listen church, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 2, verse 10. For you once were not a, not a people, mm. but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. <laughs> Do you see it, church? Salvation is rooted and fixed in mercy. Mercy, the active compassion of God a form of his grace. In fact, church, so much is mercy the undergirding of God's actions towards the sinner in salvation that the Bible refers to us, listen, church, not as vessels of God's love, but vessels of God's mercy. Listen to Paul in Romans 9, 22 through 24. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured 
with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of the glory upon his vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from the, among the Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. Vessels of mercy. God opened you up and poured his mercy into you. Mercy overflows to you. You deserve judgment and hellfire. You deserve destruction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the just recompense of sin is condemnation. But you're living today with peace with God. How did you get that way? God showed mercy to you. <laughs> he was compassionate. Not because of you, because you deserved the other, but because of himself, he poured his compassion into you. He poured his mercy into you, such that you became literally a vessel full of mercy. Praise God. Vessels of mercy. Don't miss our next point, though. Here we come finally to the nature of the believer's hope. The nature of the believer's hope. This regeneration accomplished something. It gave us hope. It gave us hope. And this was living. <laughs> Peter said, that we've been born again to a living hope, a living hope. Now, this is, this is a powerful statement here. Let, we're going to have to dig into this just a little bit. Normally, when we consider the matter of hope, we have it as, as its primary and oftentimes only meaning the idea of expectation, expectation regarding the future. And it does mean that, obviously. Although the Greeks talked of hope as an expectation regarding the future, it was not through their understanding of hope that the biblical authors derived their understanding of it. So although the, although the Greeks had a word for hope that is used in this text, a, a common Greek term, and although the Greeks spoke of hope, the New Testament authors didn't turn to them to understand what, 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 what God's hope meant or looked like. You see, for the Greek person, expectation regarding the future was, was vague and nebulous. And as such, the future could not be looked towards confidently. In fact, for the Greek person, sometimes hope was good and sometimes it was bad. Having hope was a bad thing because you couldn't trust what the future had. For the Christian, hope takes on a completely different meaning, a fuller meaning. Does it mean future expectation? Obviously it does, yes. But it's more than just that. Hope for the believer has within it the concept of confidence in God. Confidence in God. For the believer, hope is confident expectation in the Lord that produces assurance and surety regarding the future. Now, 
it's no surprise then that the roots of the New Testament concept of hope are not found in the Greek culture, but in the Old Testament scriptures. Now, this is important. Follow me here this morning closely. As you know, the, he, the, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Hebrew was a, a language that the, the children of Israel lost the usage of. And we see it in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. They, they were not, no longer able to speak the language. And so part of what happened was the rabbis would give Aramaic translations as they, as they read the, the scripture. They would translate it into, into Greek. And then eventually the Jews made a Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures. And the word hope in the Greek was used in the Old Testament to translate the Hebrew concept of trust. Interesting. Sometimes when they came to the word trust in Hebrew, they were translated as hope. Interesting. Let me give you some examples of this. 2 Kings 18 verse 5. Here we see such an example. It says, he trusted, in the Greek Old Testament, it said hoped, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. We see the same phenomenon in Psalm 65, verse 5. Psalm 65, verse 5. It says, by awesome deeds thou dost answer us in righteousness, O God of our salvation. Thou art the, the trust, thou art the hope of all the ends of the earth, of all the furthest sea. Interesting. In Psalm 62, verse 8, all of God's people were commended in this fashion. It says, trust. In the Greek, they translated it hope. In him at all times, O people. And so we see that they use this idea of hope to translate the Hebrew concept of trust. In fact, so confident, listen to this, so confident were God's people in him that the Jews also used this term hope to translate the Hebrew concept of take refuge. Wow. Listen to Psalm, 70, Psalm 7, verse 1. Psalm 7, verse 1. It says, O Lord my God, in thee I have hoped, take, taken refuge. Save me from all those who pursue me and deliver me. Literally, in the Greek, the, 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 the Jews translated this, in thee I have hoped, rather than in thee I have taken refuge. This is confidence, church. You, you, you are so confident in God that in times of difficulty, in times of trouble, in times of, 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 of impossibility, where do you run? You run to God. You take refuge in God. Why? Because you hope in him. You're confident in him. He is trustworthy. <laughs> Because of that, forged against the backdrop of the Old Testament concept of trust, Peter and the other New Testament authors understood hope to mean not just expectation. That's too shallow. 
for the New Testament authors, this hope was a confidence and a reliance wholly upon the Lord God. It was, it was, it was based or built upon a sure expectation regarding the, the, the future. Why? Because God can be trusted. God can be trusted. We don't have to be hopeless. Why? Because God can be trusted. Where do you look, church? Who are you looking to? If your eyes are fixated on this world, you will be hopeless. We look around us and we're literally blown out the water when we see the foolishness going on in our country. How, how does that happen? Men wanting to become women, women want to become men. The, the whole thing is preposterous. And you can, be, you can become so engaged in the foolishness that you can become hopeless. But the believer lifts his eyes beyond the horizon upward and looks towards God who can be trusted. He can be relied upon. I don't know how or when, but I know it will happen. God is going to fix this thing. He can be trusted. And we need to be making sure that our our children understand that their hope is found not in this world and what it offers them. They're going to have to get their, their eyes off of the world and onto the Lord. Peter, that's why Peter described this hope, not just as hope, he said a living hope. A living hope. Now, <laughs> let's be honest. At first this sounds odd. Because normally we don't attach the idea of living to objects or virtues. Beings are living, right? Animals are living. Humans are living. Trees are living. There's life in them. We don't normally attach the concept of living to inanimate objects or virtues. But Peter's meaning here is not that hope was living in the same sense that beings are living. Peter's point focused on the concept of that which was valid, real, that which corresponded to reality, certain. What am I saying here? So, some people hear hope and what they think about is the content, the objective content of the believer's hope. And, and without a doubt, there is an objective content to our hope. We don't hope in hope. Okay. We, 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 we hope in something or someone, and, and what he has promised. So, so our hope has content to it. But that's not the meaning in our text today. Our text is focused on, on living hope. In other words, a, this is the virtue of hope considered as the motivating principle about, of living life. A, a hope that determines how you live. Not just the content of our hope, that's important, that's theological. We sign off on all the right doctrines. Yes, we, 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 we believe that there is an established objective hope. But this is referring to hope in the sense of that which drives the believers living in the world. H how we live is we live as hopeful people. Hope drives us. Hope engages us. Hope enables us to live in this world in a way that pleases the Lord. 
living hope. Peter's other uses of hope tell us this. Let's look at this quickly. Regarding the fact that hope is directed towards God, much like faith is, listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. It says, For he was foreknown, this is Jesus, before the foundation of the world, but he has appeared in these last times, <clears throat> appeared in these last times for the sake of you, verse 21, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, watch this, so that your faith and hope are in God. Your faith and hope. It's not just faith in God. We believe that, obviously. But it's hope in God as well. Our hope is fixed in God. What are you hoping in? Are you hoping in God? Faith and hope is directed towards God. This is a living hope. Regarding the matter of hope being more than just an objective content, but it's a virtue that determines how we live, our actions. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Listen to this. <laughs> Peter says, this is clearly living, church. This is clearly living. 1 Peter 1, verse 13. Therefore, gird your minds for action. See that? Gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Watch this. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the salvation of Jesus Christ. Peter is talking about actions, how you live, how you conduct yourself in this life, how you, how you, how you live within the context of other people who are hopeless and have nothing that, 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 that enables them to live effectively in this life. You are different. On your job, in the classroom, wherever you are, you strike a different note because hope drives you. Let me just read this again. 1 Peter 1 verse 13. Therefore, gird your minds. Why? For action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope where? Completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is a living hope. This is a hope that determines how you live. How you conduct yourself. Peter sees their hope as more than just being something. He sees their hope as doing something. Even in the face of trials and tribulations that the believers to whom he's writing were facing, these people were catching it. I mean, just read 1 Peter. They were in the midst of some serious suffering, an ordeal of fire. I mean... <laughs> We don't, we don't understand the level of suffering these people win. And what Peter does is Peter points them to hope to drive their living in the context of difficulty. How are these people going to make it? When you don't know that you're, that you're going to go home and find that you still have a house, that, you, that, that, that your property is still your property, when you don't know that your, your life is not going to be confronted and you're going to be forced to either choose Caesar or choose Jesus Christ when you're walking in that context you need to understand hope in God is what keeps you in that context hope in God look to God fix your hope on God that's the only way you can make it Peter says we've been born again 
to a living hope. This hope, this confident, reliant expectation in God is not something at the periphery or the outskirts of the Christian faith. It's at the very epicenter of what makes a Christian Christian. It's no wonder Paul defined being unsaved as having no hope and without God in the world. You see, church, our hope breathes life into our living. While the world's hopelessness is a sign of their death and judgment, is it any wonder that Paul connected steadfastness and hope in 1 Thessalonians? In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, he, he refers to what's called the steadfastness of hope. <laughs> the steadfastness of hope. What, what is that? What, what is the steadfastness of hope? What, what is the steadfastness that hope produces? The steadfastness that comes out of hope. In other words, what he's saying here is that it was this hope, this expectation fueled by their confidence and reliance wholly upon the Lord God that enabled the Thessalonians to faithfully continue in their Christian walk in spite of their difficulties and hardships. Do you see a, a reoccurring theme here? How can, the, how can the believer face difficult times? How can the believer face challenging times? How can, how can the believer face times that make them scratch their head? How, how do you do that? There's a steadfastness that hope produces. <laughs> There's a steadfastness that hope produces. When you have a living hope, it produces in you a capacity to hang in there, to be steadfast, to remain solid, to not back down. To not acquiesce to the flow. To not be caught up in the movement. But you instead are locked in and steadfast. You're set, you're established with God. Hope produces that. Hope produces that. I think we need some of that in this upcoming year, don't you? <laughs> Oh, man, we need some of this hope. Man, we need it, we need it, we need it, we need it. Finally, finally, let's look at the means to the believer's hope. The means to the believer's hope. Peter is challenging his readers to continue to rely on God, for that is what they've been born again to do. You'll notice that verse 3 ends with a comma, indicating that this was just the opening statement of a broader set of truths. However, we're going to close this morning with this final statement in verse 3, the means to the believer's hope. How could or, or how does a person come to experience this type of birth that gives them such a hope? Peter indicated through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I don't have enough time to fully mine the implications of this, but, but let's, just, let's, let's just succinctly tie these words to what's been going on in this verse. 
The meaning of this phrase is pretty straightforward. Jesus didn't remain dead. We all know that. He was resurrected from, from the grave after he had been murdered by the Jews and the Romans. But notice here that, that Peter begins this statement with the preposition through. Through. Indicating that he was referring to the means or the agency by which the verb in this statement took place. You were born again, how? Through the resurrection. You were born again through the resurrection. Please be careful to note here that as far as Peter was concerned, the resurrection didn't make salvation possible, it saved you. It saved you. More than making salvation possible, the resurrection saves. Through, he said. Oh, I would have expected faith here. Or the gospel. Or, or maybe even mercy or, or grace. But he says the resurrection. Why does he do that? Without the resurrection, there is no surety of the expiation and propitiation of Jesus' death. Without the resurrection, you don't know whether your sins were really paid for or not. Without the resurrection, you don't know that God could exercise his love towards you. You were a sinner bound for condemnation. God had to be made propitious towards you. He had to be able to exercise love, and he couldn't exercise love until your sin and your guilt were taken away by expiation. And the only way that we know that expiation and therefore propitiation can take place is because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the stamp of approval. What Christ did was not for himself. What Christ did was for you and me. Took our guilt. Took our sin. And then God was free to exercise his love towards us. Thank God. <laughs> Thank God for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We celebrate that resurrection every Sunday, don't we, church? That's why we meet on Sundays in celebration of his resurrection without the resurrection these things would be impossible Peter says you were born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead but something else here that we shouldn't miss this morning is the placement of this clause you, you would have expected it to, to come before to a living hope, but he, he places it after living hope to emphasize the hope, and what we're left with <laughs> is that our living hope comes from our living Lord. <laughs> our living hope comes from our living Lord. That's why we have a living hope, because Jesus Christ lives today. Our hope, saints, is not a pie-in-the-sky type of hope. We don't advocate hoping in hope. <laughs> we have a full assurance of our hope because it is grounded in the historical event of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This reminds me of another passage in 1 Thessalonians 
First Thessalonians 1 verses 9 and 10 read as follows. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. We know that waiting and hope go together for the believer and both find their basis in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The believer need not wait timidly, but rather they can wait with great confidence and expectation. They need not cower, but they can have true and living hope, even regarding the future because of what took place with Christ in time. A hope that sustains undergirds their living in time, even in difficult circumstances. I know, Baraka, that this, that you're going through some challenging times. But I want to commend you this morning to the hope of the Lord. Hope in God. Hope in God to do the spiritual work of rebuilding your fellowship. Hope in God. Look to him. He can do it. Do you doubt his capacity? One of the, one of the members of your church is, is the ruler of the universe, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. He's made him the head of the church. He's right here in your midst. He has the capacity. He has the ability. There is nothing that you need to do in the next few days that God cannot enable you to do as a fellowship. I believe it. I believe it. Hope in God. Hope in Jesus Christ. God has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks this morning for the hope we have in your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for showing us mercy. <laughs> mercy that we didn't deserve. Kindness that we should not have been given. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you, that you made us alive together with Jesus Christ. And not only that, you seated us in heavenly places. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the hope we have in your blessed Son. I pray for this fellowship that you would do only what you can do. Build your church, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.